This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. It is the 19th anniversary of September the 11th, and we have a number of ceremonies all over North America that are honoring those who were lost. We had 24 Canadians killed. We had almost 3,000 people total killed. But we also take time to honor first responders. And we wanted to honor Al Bratz for what he has done in his career in firefighting. But we have an opportunity to do that and talk certainly about what that day was like for London first responders, for London firefighters. Please welcome recently retired District Fire Chief in London, Ontario, Al Bratz. Al, thanks so much for being here. You know what? It's a pleasure to be here. I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my uh, my career and uh, the people I love in the London Fire Department. Well, as we've talked about a couple of times on the show, it takes a special person to be able to say, oh, there's danger over there and people are running away. Don't worry. I'm going to run toward it. And we'll get to kind of what that is like as a career and as a day-to-day job in a moment. But this being September 11th, what are the feelings that, that come up or what are the conversations that come up around first responders? Well, certainly, just like everybody in the general population, we all remember exactly what we were doing at that moment when uh, 9-11 did hit. And it takes us back, and I believe it was like 19 years ago that happened. And, and uh, I'm not exactly sure how long ago, but it seems like it was such a long time. And, you know, we, we can reflect on what life was like back then and how it's changed now. But it's certainly as first responders, um, it brought to light how things, variables in our career, there's things that happen that we can't expect and believe whatever happened. And certainly those firefighters that went up in the towers never in their right mind ever thought that they would come down the way they did. And there isn't a firefighter across North America that ever would have dreamed that would have happened. So yeah. it brings to light the dangers of our job and the type of people who do want to charge forward no matter what. And we had people from London who charged forward, went to New York, and, and it took, it seemed, hours before people were saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm going. Yeah, um, that's the nature of the firefighters, and certainly there were fire departments from all over North America wanting to converge to New York, and the New York fire department had to say, stop, we can't, we can't handle everybody coming in here. But everybody, everybody wanted to drop what they were doing in their own lives as first responders and go help our sisters and brothers in New York. And we had quite well, a, a number of them that did get through and go there, and we celebrate, and every year we see their pictures of their place out on Facebook with the with their fellow brothers, you know, showing up there in New York, and I've ever seen them with their long overcoats and their uniforms looking loud and proud. And it's a proud day for all of us to see them there and having done that job. Well, a job that allows you a sense of pride like that and a sense of camaraderie and, and teamwork is is sometimes rare. We're talking with recently retired District Fire Chief in London, Ontario, Al Bratz. Al, let's look at, at that mentality. What is it that you have to have within you to be able to say, don't worry, I know there's danger, but I'm not going to be the one to go and sit in a nice, safe place. I'm not looking for the safe place. I'm looking at, at treating the danger, at dealing with the danger. How do you do that? 
Well, I guess if you look at the type of people that, first of all, apply to get on a fire department, and, and just the application process is a very difficult thing. And nowadays, young people, they have to go to college courses. So it was always very competitive to get on. You have to write all kinds of tests and do physical tests and written tests and, and um, uh, interviews and, and all kinds of things to jump through the hoops to get on. But now the young people have to take courses and college courses. So I believe that throughout all the years, we've always hired the best to be on the London Fire Department. But then what happens, once you do get on, we make them better. So we hire the best, but then we make them better. And you join a culture of people that mentor you to the position that we're one big team, we're one big family, and when the, when the uh, alarm phone goes off, we're getting on those trucks, and no matter what we're going to, we're going to use all our training, our teamwork, and our camaraderie to get that job done. And certainly, you know, I talk about some of the events we go to, and there's certain type of extreme events that we go to. They're the ones that when you get on scene as an officer, you don't have time to actually direct people. We have to use all our training, all our communication skills, all our abilities, and things just fall into place, bang, 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 because of the way we train and do our job. So we mentor our people to have that type of attitude that when, when things are tough, we're going to dig in and get the job done. So you just have to arrive on scene and instantly know, okay, this is the kind of situation, here's what I do, here's what that person's doing, here's what that person's doing. Yes, and you know, we have a system where we train our people, um, and that's, it's called a blue card system of, of incident command. So when we get on scene, the first arriving officer takes command of the scene and, and, and does a sit, a sit rep report of what's happening. Because oftentimes, Mike, when we are called out to a scene, we arrive, and we're thinking upon arrival, it's one type of a scene, but based on certain circumstances, we get there and it's something completely different. Sometimes communication breakdowns occur when people call in the incident. So when you're going to the scene, you think it's one thing, and you get there and it's something completely different. So we have to have the ability to, as soon as they get there, assess, scale up the operation and build an organization based on manpower and units and trucks, depending what are our fire ground factors, what are what we need to accomplish. And then we got to look at what type of resources do we need and get those on scene. So we build, scale up the organization. And as we mitigate it, then scale it down. And all that happens through our strong communication and our teamwork. We are talking with recently retired London District Fire Chief Al Bratt. Al, how old were you when you got on for the first time on a fire department? I was actually uh, 24 years old. I'll never forget it because um, I applied back then. You had to apply to the city, and you had to go for a big written test at uh, Centennial Hall, and it seemed like there were six or 700 people in there, and you think, God, there's no hope to get on in this thing, right? And then once you got past that written test, you got called for a physical test, and then there was a personal interview. And out of all those four things, there was two written tests we had to do, a mechanical one and then a general knowledge one. You got a mark out of 400, and the higher you got, the higher your position was for hiring. So about a year and a half from applying, later I got on at 24 years old, and it was the happiest day of my life. I'll never forget it. And every single firefighter I've seen come on the job, they all do the same thing. You go into the stores division, you get your fatigue clothes that you wear, you get your turnout turn gear, and you rush away, right away you get home, and you try that stuff on, and you look at yourself in the mirror, you know, and you got your fatigue, and you put your, your big turnout gear and your helmet and your, your bunker stuff on, and 
You're looking at yourself proud. It's almost like that's uh, the right of the start of your career, looking at yourself in the mirror the day you get all that, that equipment and all that gear. Isn't that wild? Now, and you know, like back then, back then, Mike, you know, it's funny, too. You look at changes. When I started, we had long yellow coats and pull-up rubber boots that were hip boots that would come up to our hips, right? And that's all we had for the protection on our legs. And nowadays, we've got all these this, this high-tech bunker gear. So over the years, I've seen a lot of changes, procedural and equipment-wise, in the fire service. Now, is it any lighter now than maybe when it was years ago? Oh, certainly, yeah, because even back then, we had steel tanks for, for FCBA or self-contained breathing apparatus. So they were real heavy dogs on your back. But, you know, you look at it, every firefighter, they're wearing at least 60 pounds extra on their body weight, right, when they're going in fighting those fires. So... You know, the equipment has definitely gotten better. The uh, the technology and the, the self-contained breathing apparatus for for uh, air control and getting people out and the alarm systems and all that type of stuff have gotten a whole lot better. The bunker gear protects us so much more. Um, you look at um, our procedures now with NIOSH testing and all the scientific involvement within looking into how putting out urban type of fires, our procedures have changed dramatically. And things have gotten way better, better for firefighters now. We're talking with recently retired District Fire Chief Al Bratz. Al, you mentioned getting on at 24, never thinking that it was even possible with the hundreds of people sitting around you. Do you remember the first time the alarm went off? Actually, I do. So when I when I went through uh, my training, you get your squad, I guess, allotment. I was sent to C squad. And I've been on C-Squad my whole career, and I started at the, the old Central Fire Hall, the one on York and Waterloo. And back then, it was a night shift that I started on Engine 1. And that particular night, we had three house fires in one night. So, of course, you come in for the evening, and there's, there's, we had lineup back then. So we had to wear our full uh, uniform tunics and our caps before we started our shift, and the captains will be opposite us in all their gold uniform. And the people coming on shift will be in the front line. The people leaving the end of their shift will be in the back. They do a roll call and give you orders, that type of thing. Then you go off and change your fatigues. Then we'd go upstairs and have coffee and dinner type thing and just have a little briefing. And I remember sitting there thinking, boy, this is really weird. This is the first time I'm just meeting these guys for the first time. And you're trying to get to know everybody. And, and next you know, the, the bell goes off and off we are at a house fire, you know. And right away... You have to jump into action, and I'll never forget my captain. It was Bill Scott. He was a Scottish fellow, and um, it was an interesting time back then because the guys all said to you, if, if you get to the fire, you got to jump off that truck and get in that house because if you don't get in that house, you're going to be labeled as a dry coat, and you don't ever want to be labeled as a dry coat because you'll be, you'll be sticking with you your whole career. Isn't that a funny little terminology there? That is. So, of course, of course. We get up to the house, and all the trucks pull up, and everybody jumps off the truck, and they're all running into the house, right? Just like they called it. And all of a sudden, you get in there, smoke everywhere, and guys are kind of bumping into each other and moving around. You can hear the breathing apparatus, so the sound of the air coming out of the mask, just like that, right? But you can't really see a whole lot, so I'm just following my guys around. And uh, it seemed like it was like controlled anarchy in a way, but it's, it's the way they did things back then. Everybody went in, you know, and it, it was uh, a real rush. But the senior people, they looked after me. And that's the one thing that I learned 
in my young days in the fire service is, is the senior people are your mentors. They're the ones that take care of you. They're the ones that take you from uh, being good people on to being the best, right? They, they're the ones that make you the best. So I, I thank all my my mentors before me to make me who I am today, really. i got to tell you that. Well, that's fantastic because you certainly – Proceeded through the ranks and now retiring as district fire chief. Is there a moment you think back on or, or a couple of moments that you think back on that you think, wow, that that actually happened? I, I was there. I, I was a part of that happening. I've, oh, man, I've got a whole – I could sit here and tell you stories for hours on end here, Mike. But um, there, there was one incident that really impacted me dramatically – and that was one back in 1995, and it was one that occurred on Bathurst Street. And the alarm came in as, as uh, two guys trapped under a tank. And we were, I was operating out of the old Central Fire Hall down, downtown, riding out of the back of Engine 1. So we're, we're going on scene as we're en route to Bathurst Street. There's an old yard down there on the corner of Rideau and Bathurst. And thinking that there's guys under a tank. So when we got there, I remember seeing a guy running around, holding his head, and he's, he's screaming and, and yelling, looked like he was in pain. And upon further investigation, it wasn't two guys under a tank. It was two guys that were trapped inside a big tank. And it was a company that was doing some contract work for London Hydro, and they were cleaning PCBs out of the, these transformers. As part of this process they were using, and these two, two guys entered through a portal on top of the tank, and they became overcome. And it turned into an operation of extricating these, these guys who had lost their lives in this tank. And uh, it was a very difficult operation for us. We did get them out over a couple days because, there was, you know, we didn't have totally all equip the equipment to get the job done properly. But the worst thing about that was meeting the family a year later because there was an inquest. And, you know... The one young boy from Manitoba, his father came in, and 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 we all, and his and his, and his mom and, and his sister, and right away the dad broke down crying a year later, and he was so upset, and he was really upset, and I found out later it's because of the fact that um, he had heard from the young boy's aunt in Toronto that his son was not looking too well, a little bit sick, and it was two weeks earlier that the dad said to his boy. Use all the safety equipment possible. Be safe. You'll be done in a couple of weeks going back to university. And it was the next day that he got the ill-fated call that his son had died in, in the tank. And then, so that really struck me. You know, young workers and get, giving advice as a father to, you know, take care of yourself. He assumed that all, all the safety equipment and everything was there and the training and everything like that, but it didn't seem to be the case. The other side of it was the young boy's sister said to me, Al, did you... Uh, did you take care of him when you placed him in a casket? Because what we had to do was the one day, uh, there were, I've never seen this before, but there was a casket brought on site by the coroner's office, and it was a metal casket. And we placed the one fellow into it, and a lid went on top of the, the casket, and every six inches was a bolt, and it was bolted down, never to be opened again. And it was only because these guys were deemed hazardous materials because they were immersed in a chemical in this tank overnight and there wasn't a hospital or a morgue or, or any funeral home that wanted to take them. So the question came from his sister, did you take care of him when you put him in this casket? And then and I said, yes, we placed him in gently and 
laid his head down in there, and I remember taking the keys out of his pocket for the Holiday Inn and his wallet and that type of stuff. And then the next question came in. She said, well, was he actually there? Did you actually get your hands on him? And that's at the point where I said to myself, good God, they never got closure of their loved one. They never even thought, they just thought maybe he vaporized because he was in this chemical and they needed reassurance that he was actually there and we physically touched him. So, so that type of incident really impacted me because oftentimes, Mike, when we go to these calls, we don't get the chance to meet the families afterwards. And so to hear that side of it was very, very touching for me. And, you know, the, the people later sent me a, an amazing thank you card. I still have it to this day. I cherish it. But we, I turned that incident into something positive because a, a partner of mine and myself, another firefighter in London, we looked at confined space type of calls, which is what that was. And we said there's far too many incidents of death going on across Ontario at that time. And we started a whole training program for industry. And taking the level of training to industry at the level that we give in the fire service. And so, you know, we did that for a number of years. And we also made about 10 different recommendations to changes to the Occupational Health and Safety Act with regards to confined space work. So that incident allowed us to improve things across Ontario. Isn't that incredible? What a story. Well, Al, we'll have to have you back and tell more stories, but you have given a side of what you have done for your career that a lot of us don't get to see, and, and that side where you are in touch sometimes with people who, who just need that closure, who just need to know, and you've been involved in, in helping so many people in all kinds of different situations. So congratulations on the career. Thank you for what you have done for the City of London and the attitude you brought every day. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Mike, I, th- I really appreciate being here. I just want to say one last thing. Um, the one thing I'm going to miss the most on the London Fire Department is the people. And there isn't an occupation in the world where the day you start in an organization, you automatically have... 400 sisters and brothers that are willing to be there and take care of you in every aspect of your life. And I feel so fortunate and so blessed to have been selected to be in this occupation and to have the relationships that I have in the London Fire Service and to certainly be part of the history of the London Fire Department. So I really thank you for giving me this opportunity today, Mike. Al, we'll do it again. You take care, keep safe, and enjoy retirement. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. That is recently retired District Fire Chief Al Bratz. What a story. When we look at things like post-secondary education, you've got students being trained for that sort of thing right now, where they're being told by instructors and professors that this is what you're getting into, here are some things you will encounter, and here's how you need to deal with those. Here's how you need to be thinking. And that training is something that we certainly take for granted because it's it's why teachers and firefighters like Al Bratz, who we just spoke with, and police officers and farmers, they need to be the millionaires. Sorry, NBA players, you don't need to make as much money as you do. We should actually be giving it to instructors and professors and firefighters and police officers and doctors and nurses and farmers and that's where it should go because they are creating that next generation that goes forward that takes our world in different directions 
And as we talked about yesterday on London Live, education is in a very strange place because it's not about regurgitation of facts. Did you have to ever memorize the record of the Edmund Fitzgerald? Was that just in, in my curriculum? But I remember having to memorize every word, spelling tests, where you, you memorized words or, or other facts you had to memorize and then regurgitate them on tests. Sometimes learning is taking a different course in the way that it is being used now, and that's probably a good thing. And someone who pays very close attention to that is Dr. Charles Pascal, who is a professor in applied psychology and human development at the University of Toronto. And he's also a former Ontario Deputy Minister of Education. And we're lucky enough to have him with us now. Dr. Pascal, thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Mike. Good to talk to you. Let's kind of look at where post-secondary education sits. Are, are we at something that we could call a crossroads in terms of how education is being delivered, or are we just at a place where we can tweak and and kind of mold it to go in a different direction? Well, first of all, I love your setup. Uh, I, I might uh, disagree with you about uh, Kyle being one of the best uh, NBA players <laughs> of all time. I'd put him in the top 500 for sure. No it's a long list. It. It's a long list, but, uh, but he's uh, he's been sparking our uh, optimism. So, uh, but your setup uh, talks really about uh, how the uh, pandemic uh, has to uh, basically uh, yield a reinvention of how we think about education from preschool uh, right through colleges and universities. And uh, what I really like about uh, uh, your opening comment is uh, the fact that going forward, and I, I'm going to say from uh, preschool, uh, where we've invented uh, in Ontario a play-based problem-solving curriculum, Everything that takes place from preschool through elementary and secondary and on into colleges and universities should be problem-solving, as you've suggested. Uh, this notion of being uh, uh, trivia uh, discipline-generated uh, rather than looking at how uh, the complex uh, social and economic uh, problems of, of today and tomorrow uh, can be dealt with in a far different way of, of thinking about uh, how we educate the youngest uh, through uh, through the uh, life cycle of, of education. And where do you think we sit in that scope in terms of how much problem-solving is being taught? Do we need to do it in a greater fashion than what's being done now, or is that kind of a move happening over time? Well, I think, uh, you know, it varies. Uh, you know, if, if I look at uh, my peer professors uh, in various disciplines, we're very... Uh, problem solving, uh, problem solving oriented, but we need to start earlier regarding uh, creative problem solving. Having uh, groups of students, as they are in Finland right now in the seventh grade, uh, you know, in groups of you know ten to fifteen, trying to uh, solve uh, climate problems, uh, taking the disciplines off the shelf as they need to uh, use them to solve a problem. I think we can do a lot better. I think we must uh, do a lot better in terms of uh, ensuring that uh, we. Uh, reinvent uh, post-secondary education. Uh, one of the, the key issues, of course, right now is that uh, uh, online learning and remote uh, distance learning uh, has been a major challenge for everybody. I would say a very large percentage of my colleagues in universities uh, have not done a lot of creative online remote uh, uh, teaching, and many students vary with respect to their ability or interest in it, and we have a lot of work to do to reinvent how we uh, do uh, online learning in a very creative way. But uh, 
Uh, I think, as you, as you suggest, I think the pandemic is very useful in, in calling attention to the fact that we can do a lot better in terms of post-secondary education. And when you talk about Kyle uh, as a leader, and, and leadership is everything, uh, to focus, as you do, on the fact that everybody needs to be a leader, and being a leader going forward means a very deep sense of anti-oppression, uh, the, uh, the Black Lives Matter, uh, racialized groups, LGBTQ. You can't be a leader unless you understand inclusion. You can't be a leader going forward uh, unless you understand indigenous issues and the, the truth and reconciliation calls to action. That kind of leadership has to be embedded at all levels, and you can't leave a college or university in the future if you want to lead uh, in your community, if you want to lead in the classroom, if you want to lead at the firehouse, if you want to lead a university or even a wonderful uh, radio station in London, Ontario, you have to have a, a very strong understanding of inclusion. Uh, and we also have to teach uh, deep listening and uh, uh, because the listening is an empathy are the uh, to us, uh, the, the, uh, the two uh, most important things in terms of working with other people. What a great way to say it. Dr. Charles Pascal joining us, professor in applied psychology and human development at the University of Toronto and a former Ontario Deputy Minister of Education. Dr. Pascal, just as we close out, in terms of making changes to curriculum work, how exactly does that happen so that what you're talking about, because there may not be everywhere this element of of yeah. focusing on leadership or teaching inclusion or those sorts of things, how does that come to be? Well, quick story, because I know you're short of time. So about uh, three years ago um, in June, I was addressing uh, graduating class at Laurentian University. Uh, and uh, just before the uh, the convocation, I was introduced to uh, the Dean of Arts who the day before uh, had managed to get through their Senate of uh, the notion that every undergraduate uh, at that university, and this is happening across other universities, would take a course uh, on uh, the indigenous issues and the severe consequences of the residential schools. As I was addressing convocation, I noticed a family, an indigenous family, identified by a grandmother holding an eagle feather and the way others were dressed. And I don't use a lot of prepared texts, and so I went off uh, a non-script, and I said to the uh, president and the chancellor, if it's good enough, if a course is good enough for undergraduates, why aren't every, why isn't it that every professor, staff member, administrator at this university isn't going through a deep anti-oppression uh, approach? So these notions of people, especially people with white privilege, saying we need more of this and more of that, you start with leadership, and those who have position, power, and leadership, they have to lead from within. They have to be ones to model uh, doing something differently. They have to be the ones who listen to, uh, to others about their lived experience. And unless the leadership at all levels of our society actually take the lead regarding leading their own way forward, going deep on what they know and understanding uh, the discomfort of what they don't know, uh, it won't happen. But the best way of cultural change is through great, courageous leadership of those who have power. Dr. Pascal, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I hope we get a chance to do it again. Me too, Mike. Thanks so much. That is Dr. Charles Pascal. He's a professor in applied psychology and human development at the University of Toronto and a former Ontario Deputy Minister of Education. Great message. That's the way it's got to go. And we are at an opportunity, as Dr. Pascal pointed out, we've talked about this on London Live before, an opportunity to look at everything. How are we doing it? 
How do we make changes? And he points to leadership to do it. And not leadership in government, not leadership, you know, in any particular spot, leadership from everywhere. Everybody has the opportunity to be a leader. We talked about the Raptors. They've got more than one leader on that floor. Because anybody can say, yeah, I, I got this. I got you. And that's what will get you through big-time situations. It is the 19th anniversary of September the 11th. And we have a number of ceremonies all over North America that are honoring those who were lost. We had 24 Canadians killed. We had almost 3,000 people total killed. But we also take time to honor first responders. And we wanted to honor Al Brads for what he has done in his career in firefighting. But we have an opportunity to do that and talk certainly about what that day was like for London first responders, for London firefighters. Please welcome recently retired District Fire Chief in London, Ontario, Al Bratz. Al, thanks so much for being here. You know what? It's a pleasure to be here. I, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my uh, my career and uh, the people I love in the London Fire Department. Well, as we've talked about a couple of times on the show, it takes a special person to be able to say, oh, there's danger over there and people are running away. Don't worry. I'm going to run toward it. And we'll get to kind of what that is like as a career and as a day-to-day job in a moment. But this being September 11th, what are the feelings that, that come up or what are the conversations that come up around first responders? Well, certainly, just like everybody in the general population, we all remember exactly what we were doing at that moment when uh, 9-11 did hit. And it takes us back, and I believe it was like 19 years ago that happened. And, and uh, I'm not exactly sure how long ago, but it seems like it was such a long time. And, you know, we, we can reflect on what life was like back then and how it's changed now. But it's certainly as first responders, um, it brought to light how things, variables in our career, there's things that happen that we can't expect and believe whatever happened. And certainly those firefighters that went up in the towers never in their right mind ever thought that they would come down the way they did. And there isn't a firefighter across North America that ever would have dreamed that would have happened. So it brings to light the dangers of our job and the type of people who do want to charge forward no matter what. And we had people from London who charged forward, went to New York, and, and it took, it seemed, hours before people were saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in, I'm going. Yeah, um, that's the nature of the firefighters, and certainly there were fire departments from all over North America wanting to convert to New York, and the New York fire department had to say, stop, we can't, we can't handle everybody coming in here. But everybody, everybody wanted to drop what they were doing in their own lives as first responders and go help our sisters and brothers in New York. And we had a, quite a number of them that did get through and go there. And we celebrate, and every year we see their pictures of their place out on Facebook with, the, with their fellow brothers, you know, showing up there in New York. And I remember seeing them with their long overcoats and their uniforms looking loud and proud. And it's a proud day for all of us to see them there and having done that job. Well, a job that allows you a sense of pride like that and a sense of camaraderie and, and teamwork is is sometimes rare. We're talking with recently retired District Fire Chief in London, Ontario, Al Bratz. 
Al, let's look at, at that mentality. What is it that you have to have within you to be able to say, don't worry, I know there's danger, but I'm not going to be the one to go and sit in a nice, safe place. I'm not looking for the safe place. I'm looking at, at treating the danger, at dealing with the danger. How do you do that? Well, I guess if you look at the type of people that, first of all, apply to get on a fire department, and and just the application process is a very difficult thing. And nowadays, young people, they have to go to college courses. So it was always very competitive to get on. You have to write all kinds of tests and do physical tests and written tests and, and um, uh, interviews and, and all kinds of things to jump through the hoops to get on. But now the young people have to take courses and college courses. So I believe that throughout all the years, we've always hired the best to be on the London Fire Department. But then what happens, once you do get on, we make them better. So we hire the best, but then we make them better. And you join a culture of people that mentor you to the position that we're one big team, we're one big family, and when the, when the uh, alarm phone goes off, we're getting on those trucks, and no matter what we're going to, we're going to use all our training, our teamwork, and our camaraderie to get that job done. And certainly, you know, I talk about some of the events we go to, and there's certain type of extreme events that we go to. They're the ones that, when you get on scene as an officer, you don't have time to actually direct people. We have to use all our training, all our communication skills, all our abilities, and things just fall into place, bang, 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 because of the way we train and do our job. So we mentor our people to have that type of attitude that when, when things are tough, we're going to dig in and get the job done. So you just have to arrive on scene and instantly know, okay, this is the kind of situation, here's what I do, here's what that person's doing, here's what that person's doing. Yes, and you know, we have a system where we train our people, um, and that's, it's called a blue card system of, of incident command. So when we get on scene, the first arriving officer takes command of the scene and, and, and does a sit, a sit rep report of what's happening. Because oftentimes, Mike, when we are called out to a scene, we arrive, and we're thinking upon arrival, it's one type of a scene, but based on certain circumstances, we get there and it's something completely different. Sometimes communication breakdowns occur when people call in the incident. So when you're going to the scene, you think it's one thing, and you get there and it's something completely different. So we have to have the ability to, as soon as they get there, assess, scale up the operation and build an organization based on manpower and units and trucks, depending what are our fire ground factors, what are what we need to accomplish. And then we got to look at what type of resources do we need and get those on scene. So we build, scale up the organization. And as we mitigate it, then scale it down. And all that happens through our strong communication and our teamwork. We are talking with recently retired London District Fire Chief Al Bratt. Al, how old were you when you got on for the first time on a fire department? I was actually uh, 24 years old. I'll never forget it because... Um, I applied back then. You had to apply to the city, and you had to go for a big written test at uh, Centennial Hall, and it seemed like there were six or 700 people in there, and you think, God, there's no hope to get on in this thing, right? And then once you got past that written test, you got called for a physical test, and then there was a personal interview, and out of all those four things, there was two written tests we had to do, a mechanical one and then a general knowledge one. And you got a mark out of 400, and the higher you got, the higher you position was for hiring so about a year and a half from applying later i, I got on at 24 years old and, and it was the happiest day of my life i'll never forget it and every single firefighter i've seen come on the job they all do the same thing 
You go into the stores division, you get your fatigue clothes that you wear, you get your turnout, turnout gear, and you rush away, right away you get home, and you try that stuff on, and you look at yourself in the mirror, you know, and you got your fatigues, and you put your, your big turnout gear and your helmet and your, your bunker stuff on, and you're looking at yourself proud. It's almost like that's a, the right of the start of your career, looking at yourself in the mirror the day you get all that, that equipment and all that gear. Isn't that wild? No. And you know, like back then, back then, Mike, you know, it's funny, too. You look at changes. When I started, we had long yellow coats and pull-up rubber boots that were hip boots that would come up to our hips, right? And that's all we had for the protection on our legs. And nowadays, we've got all these this, this high-tech bunker gear. So over the years, seen a lot of changes procedural and equipment-wise in the fire service. Now, is it any lighter now than maybe when it was years ago? Oh, certainly, yeah, because even back then we had steel tanks for, for FCBA or self-contained breathing apparatus, so they were real heavy dogs on your back. But, you know, you look at it, every firefighter, they're wearing at least 60 pounds extra on their body weight, right, when they're going in fighting those fires. So, you know, the equipment has definitely gotten better. The uh, the technology and the, the self-contained breathing apparatus for, for uh, air control and getting people out and the alarm systems and all that type of stuff have gotten a whole lot better. The bunker gear protects us so much more. Um, you look at um, our procedures now with NIOSH testing and all the scientific involvement within looking into how putting out urban type of fires, our procedures have changed dramatically, and things have gotten way better, better for firefighters now. We're talking with recently retired District Fire Chief Al Bratz. Al, you mentioned getting on at 24, never thinking that it was even possible with the hundreds of people sitting around you. Do you remember the first time the alarm went off? Actually, I do. So when I when I went through uh, my training, you get your squad, I guess, allotment. I was sent to C-Squad, and I've been on C-Squad my whole career. And I started at the old Central Fire Hall, the one on York and Waterloo. And back then, it was a night shift that I started on Engine 1. And that particular night, we had three house fires in one night. So, of course, you come in for the evening, and there's, there's we had lineup back then. So we had to wear a full uh, uniform tunics and our caps before we started our shift. And the captains will be opposite us in all their gold uniform. And the people coming on shift will be in the front line. The people leaving the end of their shift will be in the back. They do a roll call and give you orders, that type of thing. Then you go off and change your fatigue. Then we'd go upstairs and have coffee and dinner type thing and just have a little briefing. And I remember sitting there thinking, boy, this is really weird. This is the first time I'm just meeting these guys for the first time, and you're trying to get to know everybody. And, and next you know, the, the bell goes off, and off we are at a house fire, you know. And right away, you have to jump into action. And I'll never forget my captain. It was Bill Scott. He was a Scottish fellow. And... Um, it was an interesting time back then because the guys all said to you, if, if you get to the fire, you got to jump off that truck and get in that house. Because if you don't get in that house, you're going to be labeled as a dry coat. And you don't ever want to be labeled as a dry coat because you'll be, you'll be sticking with you your whole career. Isn't that a funny little terminology there? That is. So, of course, of course, we get up to the house and all the trucks pull up and everybody jumps off the truck and they're all running into the house, right? Just like they called it. And all of a sudden, you get in there, smoke everywhere, and guys are kind of bumping into each other and moving around. You can hear the breathing apparatus, so the sound of the air coming out of the mask, just like that, right? But you can't really see a whole lot, so I'm just following my guys around. And uh, 
it seemed like it was like controlled anarchy in a way. But it's it's the way they did things back then. Everybody went in, you know, and it it was uh, a real rush. But the senior people, they looked after me, and that's the one thing that I learned in my young days in the fire service is, is the senior people are your mentors. They're the ones that take care of you. They're the ones that take you from uh, being good people on to being the best, right? They they're the ones that make you the best. So I I thank all my my mentors before me to make me who I am today. Really, I got to tell you that. Well, that's fantastic because you certainly proceeded through the ranks and now retiring as district fire chief. Is there a moment you think back on, or or a couple of moments that you think back on that you think, wow, that that actually happened? I I was there. I I was a part of that happening. I've, oh man, I've got a whole, I could sit here and tell you stories for hours on end here, Mike, but um, there, there was one incident that really impacted me dramatically, and that was one back in 1995, and it was one that occurred on Bathurst Street, and the alarm came in as, as uh, two guys trapped under a tank, and we were, I was operating out of the old Central Fire Hall down, downtown, riding out the back of Engine 1. So we're, we're going on scene as they're en route to Bathurst Street. There's an old yard down there on the corner of Rideau and Bathurst. And thinking that there's guys under a tank. So when we got there, I remember seeing a guy running around holding his head and he's, he's screaming and, and yelling. Looked like he was in pain. And upon further investigation, it wasn't two guys under a tank. It was two guys that were trapped inside a big tank. And it was a company that was doing some contract work for London Hydro, and they were cleaning PCBs out of the, these transformers. As part of this process they were using, and the two, two guys entered through a portal on top of the tank, and they became overcome. And it turned into an operation of extricating these, these guys who had lost their lives in this tank. And uh, it was a very difficult operation for us. We did get them out over a couple days because, there was, you know, we didn't have totally all equipped the equipment to get the job done properly. But the worst thing about that was meeting the family a year later because there was an inquest. And, you know, the one bo- young boy from Manitoba, his father came in and, 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 we all, and, his, and, his, and his mom and, and his sister. And right away, the dad broke down crying a year later. And he was so upset. And he was really upset, and I found out later it's because of the fact that um, he had heard from the young boy's aunt in Toronto that his son was not looking too well, a little bit sick, and it was two weeks earlier that the dad said to his boy, use all the safety equipment possible, be safe, you'll be done in a couple weeks going back to university. And it was the next day that he got the ill-fated call that his son had died in, in the tank. And then, so that really struck me. You know, young workers and get, giving advice as a father to you know take care of yourself. He assumed that all all the safety equipment, and everything was there, and the training and everything like that, but it didn't seem to be the case. The other side of it was the young boy's sister said to me, "Al, did you uh, did you take care of him when you placed him in a casket? Because what we had to do was the one day uh, there was I've never seen this before, but there was a casket brought on site by the coroner's office, and it was a metal casket." And we placed the one fellow into it, and a lid went on top of the, the casket, and every six inches was a bolt, and it was bolted down, never to be opened again. 
And it was only because these guys were deemed hazardous materials because they were immersed in a chemical in this tank overnight, and there wasn't a hospital or a morgue or, or any funeral home that wanted to take them. So the question came from his sister, did you take care of him when you put him in this casket? And then and I said, yes, we placed him in gently and laid his head down in there. And I remember taking the keys out of his pocket for the Holiday Inn and his wallet and that type of stuff. And then the next question came in. She said, well, was he actually there? Did you actually get your hands on him? And that's at the point where I said to myself, good God, they never got closure of their loved one. They never even thought, they just thought maybe he vaporized because it was in this chemical. They needed reassurance that he was actually there and we physically touched him. So, so that type of incident really impacted me because oftentimes, Mike, when we go to these calls, we don't get the chance to meet the families afterwards. And so to hear that side of it was very, very touching for me. And, you know, the, the people later sent me a, an amazing thank you card. I still have it to this day. I cherish it. But we... T- I turned that incident into something positive because a, a partner of mine and myself, another firefighter in London, we looked at confined space type of calls, which is what that was, and we said there's far too many incidents of death going on across Ontario at that time, and we started a whole training program for industry. And taking the level of training to industry at the level that we give in the fire service. And so... You know, we did that for a number of years, and we also made about 10 different recommendations to changes to the Occupational Health and Safety Act with regards to confined space work. So that incident allowed us to improve things across Ontario. Isn't that incredible? What a story. Well, Al, we'll have to have you back and tell more stories, but you have given a side of what you have done for your career that a lot of us don't get to see, and, and that side where you are in touch sometimes with people who, who just need that closure, who just need to know, and you've been involved in, in helping so many people in all kinds of different situations. So congratulations on the career. Thank you for what you have done for the City of London and the attitude you brought every day, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Mike, I, th- I really appreciate being here. I just want to say one last thing. Um, the one thing I'm going to miss the most on the London Fire Department is the people. And there isn't an occupation in the world where the day you start in an organization, you automatically have 400 sisters and brothers that are willing to be there and take care of you in every aspect of your life. And I feel so fortunate and so blessed to have been selected to be in this occupation and to have the relationships that I have in the London Fire Service and to certainly be part of the history the London Fire Department. So I really thank you for giving me this opportunity today, Mike. Al, we'll do it again. You take care, keep safe, and enjoy retirement. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. That is recently retired District Fire Chief Al Bratz. What a story. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 